Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back, guys, to the Secret Language Podcast. It's Jesse. Uh, happy Monday. I hope things are good in your neighborhood. Uh, things are good in my neighborhood. Um, thanks for listening, guys. I'm really glad to be here talking to you guys again this week. Um, I said I wasn't going to do it, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to spend this week talking about East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I <laughs> I finished the book this week, and it is the best book I've ever read. I, I was, I've been teasing for a couple weeks now that Matt and I might get together and do an episode together where we talk about the book and what we liked about it. You know, we, we were going to go into it, but after finishing it, after reading the ending, I just, I can't keep it off my mind. I can't, I can't get rid of it. It is the best book I've ever read, and I just have to talk about it to somebody. That happens to be you guys, by the way. You guys are the people that I talk to about things. So, <laughs> well, lucky you. This, this, this says a lot that this is the book, best book that I've ever read, because I have been on quite a streak lately. Because I have been on quite a streak lately of reading good books. Uh, the past two fictional books that I've read, I have categorized as the best book I've ever read. Um, prior to East of Eden, the last work of fiction that I read was Dune by Frank Herbert. And that was the best book I'd ever read for about two months. I read that book because the trailer for Dune had just come out. It was going to come out in December of 2020, kind of in the place of Star Wars. It's a similar type sci-fi planetary story. And uh, COVID kind of said, no, we're not going to do that. That movie's been pushed back to October of this year, which I'm very disappointed about because I'm very excited to see it. But I read the book in preparation for the movie, and it is a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. Sarah's reading it right now based on my recommendation. She really likes it. So it is a quality book, and it's very good. Well, Ben Keen recommended that I read East of Eden, and it is the best book that I've ever read. I, I really just can't get it off my mind. And so after I had decided that I wanted to talk about this book, I had to decide how I was going to do that, because I'm, I'm kind of treating this in some way as a book report, talking about the book and the themes and why I liked it, but this book is complicated. After I decided, I, I was kind of brainstorming and thinking about how I could approach talking about this book, and it is not easy. Whenever I have to think about things, I do one of two things. I either write, so I have a habit of trying to keep a journal, and so when something big happens, I try to write about it, because for some reason my thoughts flow very easily when I write or my thoughts flow very easily when I talk out loud. So I was pacing around my apartment doing dishes or, you know, just, just pacing, just walking around, talking out loud to myself like some kind of a lunatic, just trying to explain the plot to myself of this book. And I was talking for like half an hour. The, the plot is complicated. I, I could spend an entire episode just explaining what happens. And I would do it so much worse than John Steinbeck does. And so, how do I describe to people what this book is about if I have to spend half an hour describing what happens? So I started thinking about it, and just some of the basics of the book. 
the book is called East of Eden, which is, it actually draws back to Genesis chapter 3 and 4, because this book is a retelling of the Cain and Abel story three times. This is how this book is structured. Um, if you look at the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, they head east. They go east of Eden. That's where God placed the angel with the flaming sword. That is where they went. And so every time in the Bible, especially in the prophets, when the word east is used, it's always being used in a negative connotation. Like that is where evil, that is where sin goes. It is in the east. It comes from the east. And so this book is taking after that, and it's being named East of Eden because it is it relies very heavily on biblical imagery and uh, biblical characters and the stories that happen. And so, like I said, this book is a retelling of Cain and Abel three times. And then I had to ask myself, why why does John Steinbeck write this three times? Why can't you just tell it once, save 400 pages of book, and end it. Like, wh why do you have to tell it three times? And after I, you know, out loud talk myself through the details of the three different Cain and Abel stories in the book, it struck me. Like, there is a major theme in the book that ties all three of those together. And the thing is, and I'll get to this, I promise, is that every time the Cain and Abel story is told, it ends differently. So, the Cain in the story, the end of his story is different every time it's told. So it sounds complicated on this front end, I promise, but it will get clearer. I'll, I'll do a better job. So basically what happens is you tell the Cain and Abel story three times, but at the end of each time after Cain has killed his brother, whether intentionally or not, Cain has, the Cain character has a different reaction each time. Once he just completely avoids the father and the brother, once the Cain character is so distraught and upset he commits suicide, and once he reaches out to the father again for forgiveness and, and looks for reconciliation for the wrong that he's done. So I had to ask myself, like, why, why tell the Cain and Abel story three times? I get why you could tell it three different times, three different reactions, and that draws on one of the major themes of the book. But why Cain and Abel? Why that story in particular? There are so many good stories in the Bible. Why do you tell that one? And there's a portion of the book where it's it's kind of meta in a way, where you've got these people living out the Cain and Abel story discussing Cain and Abel. But there's a, there's a portion in the book where a father has twins, and he has to name his children, and... He wants to go to the Bible and choose biblical names, and they, they discuss Cain and Abel. Like, I mean, they're brothers in the Bible. Why wouldn't you name them Cain and Abel? And they discuss the story of Cain and Abel, and it comes to a really interesting conclusion and describes the story very well. I'm just going to read straight from the book. I think that this is the best-known story in the world because it is everybody's story. I think it is the simple story of the human soul. I'm feeling my way now. Don't jump on me if I'm not clear. The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell that he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, and with rejection comes anger, and with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection, and with the crime, guilt. 
And there is the story of mankind. And so I finally was able to put it together. What Steinbeck is doing is he's telling what he believes is the most fundamental story in the world. Like it's the most fundamentally human story that he can tell. And I have to agree with him. I think that that is an excellent point that he he spells out in the book is that this is a story that everyone can relate to on some level. I've never killed my brother. Thank goodness I love them to death. But to some extent, we all understand what it feels to be rejected and to be angry at our, at our sibling or our loved one or a friend because we have been rejected and they haven't. And so we can all understand this and we can all understand this story and it's told so beautifully time and time again. And so through the course of this, you know, the characters discuss the Cain and Abel story and they discuss, well, they eventually choose not to name them Cain and Abel. They feel like it is a bad omen that one brother's going to end up killing the other if they name them Cain and Abel, kind of dooming them for failure. Well, later on in the book, they continue to discuss the Cain and Abel story. They continue to discuss the Cain and Abel story, and one of the characters goes back to the Hebrew translation of the Hebrew Bible. They go straight back to the original, and he picks out an interesting word that he thinks perfectly describes the story and that sheds it in the right light. And this word that he translates from Hebrew turns out to be one of the biggest, probably the biggest theme in the entire book. And that word is Timshel. So I'm just going to read Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, and I'll get to Timshel here in a second. Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. The Hebrew word, Timshel, means thou mayest. So in the King James Version of the Bible, it tells the story where God says, You must rule over it. The King James says, thou mayest rule over it. And so what that does is that offers this sense of choice. The characters have the choice. God is saying to Cain, you have a choice to rule over sin. If you do well, then you will rule over it, and it won't destroy you. And so that is one of the big themes throughout the story, and that is what ties the three Cain and Abel stories together is that you have the same story told three times, but this theme of thou mayest, that you have a choice here, says that even if the same things happen to different characters, they have a choice on how the story ends. They have this choice to rule over their sin or to let it consume them. And I think that is a beautiful way of telling the story, that we all have a choice, even if the same things happen person to person. We all have a choice on how we react and how we overcome our own sins. I think it's a really beautiful concept, and Steinbeck writes it beautifully. One of the things that he does so well in this story is that every single character is fully developed. And that's part of the structure of the book, is that he starts at the very beginning. Like, the time frame in which the story goes goes from, like, the Civil War to World War I. 
Like it is a massive swatch of time. And that's because you have to fully develop all of the characters so that we can understand the Cain and Abel portion of the story. And so you have three generations of one family, two generations of another, and then those families closely interact with each other. And those stories, the Cain and Abel story gets told three times across the generations and across the families. And every character is so beautifully fleshed out that they're all people that you, even if you hate the character, they're beautifully written. Every single character matters and you understand them. And so Steinbeck writes so beautifully and he brings the world to life. And so it's just a joy to read, even if you don't catch the major themes or you even care about what happens to the characters. It's just fun to read. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And so that's that's the first major theme is thou mayest. You have a choice to choose whether you overcome your own personal sins or not, which I think is wonderful. It's beautiful. Um, it actually ties into the next book that I'm reading on the year, The Obstacles the Way. I'll talk about that later. So that's the first major theme. I'm going to discuss the second major theme here in a bit. But right now, it is time for a word from our sponsors. This week, the Secret Language Podcast has been brought to you by thriftbooks.com. Um, thriftbooks.com is my favorite place to buy books. Uh, the thing about thriftbooks is that they are used books, and they are cheap. So I bought East of Eden on thriftbooks. And I'm actually really happy that I did because I got a nicer version of the book, but it was used and it was cheap. If you go out to a Barnes and Noble or any kind of retailer bookstore, you will buy a brand new paperback book for at least $15. I bought East of Eden for six. And the thing about thrift books is that if you spend more than $10, you get free shipping. So I bought like three books. I paid about $12 for it and it shipped to my house for free. I couldn't buy any of those books for that price. And so if you have any interest in reading books, I would check out thriftbooks.com. It is a great service and it offers you the ability to read more books for less money. And I think that's a great thing. So this week, podcast has been brought to you by thriftbooks.com. Check them out. The second major theme in East of Eden is the theme of greatness across generations. And so one of the big things is that when you see generation to generation across the story, the way that it's told in East of Eden, you have, you get to really compare characters to their parents. And that's one of the major themes in this book is that parents raise their children and the children grow up to be either exactly like their parents or completely the opposite. And that's, that's, the case in the story, but it's also the case in real life is that we choose to either be like our parents on purpose because we like the way we were raised, or we intentionally choose to be completely the opposite because we don't like the way our parents raised us. And we don't like the way that our parents ended up living their lives. And so that is one of the great themes in this book is that you get to see characters choose the same path or ignore the path of their parents and try to be great, whether that is an imitating or choosing to be the opposite of their parents. So for example, the first character that we're introduced to is the father of uh, Adam Trask. He is one of the, probably the closest thing to a main character this book has. And this man grew up, he wanted to be a soldier, he fought in one battle, 
got shot in the leg, had it amputated, and then basically became a grifter. He cheated his way into the military establishment and raised his sons to be soldiers and forced Adam to join the military. And Adam hated it. He hated what his father did to him. And so he became a very hands-off father. Like, he he didn't really raise his kids, honestly. And so that is, in one way, he was choosing to be greater than his father by being the opposite. And in a similar fashion, we have, in the, in the other family, you have Tom, and his father was Samuel, and he was very similar to his father. And his father was a great man, and he tried to be great like his father by imitating him. And in this, in another portion of the book that I'm going to read here in a second, Samuel is discussing greatness just as a human quality and kind of in reference to his son, Tom. So I'm going to read this to you. This is, uh, this is being said by Samuel in the book, East of Eden. He says, it's because I haven't got courage. I never quite take the responsibility. When the Lord God did not take my name, I might have called his name, but I did not. Here you have the difference between greatness and mediocrity. It's not an uncommon disease, but it's nice for a mediocre man to know that greatness must be the loneliest state in the world. I'd think there are degrees of greatness, Adam said. I don't think so, said Samuel. That would be like saying there is a little bigness. No, I believe that you come to the responsibility and hugeness and you are alone to make your choice. On one side you have warmth and companionship and sweet understanding, and on the other, cold, lonely greatness. There you make your choice. I'm glad I chose mediocrity, but how am I to say what reward might have come with the other? None of my children will be great either, except perhaps Tom. He's suffering over the choosing right now, and it's painful to watch. And something in me, and something in me, I want him to say yes. Isn't that strange? A father to want his son condemned to greatness. What selfishness that must be. And so I would consider Samuel a great character in this book. He's probably my favorite character in the entire book. And he doesn't think he was a great man based on just the things that you can measure. Like, he was a poor man, but he was smart and clever and kind. He was an inventor, but he never made any money. His farmland was completely useless. And so he has a whole gaggle of kids. One kid grows up to be a really successful businessman, and he chose that because he hated the fact that he grew up poor, and he wanted to exceed his father by that. Well, the only son that he th that Samuel thinks will be great is Tom, which is because he follows Samuel's path very closely, but he thinks that he will make money, and he will do the things to become great that he never did. Um, and so that is one of the big themes in this book is greatness and it's trying to exceed the works of our of our parents by being better and i think that's a wonderful theme and it's a wonderful thing to think about i am at a phase in my life where i'm really starting to be my own person and i have my own family and so very soon well hopefully not too soon but at some point in the near future i'm going to have to decide how i'm going to raise my family and lead my family like, do we, where do we live? What kind of standard of living do we have? And I have, all, the only thing I have to compare that to is the way I was raised and the way my parents 
raised me. And how do I become great 